0: Um, The rest of you can open up in your Bibles, not to Romans 5. There you go. It's been a long time coming, but I told you the day would come to Galatians chapter 3. After 13 sermons in Romans 5, uh, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 3 this morning. We are going to go back a little bit and then forward a little bit as well. So Galatians 3 will kind of be our home base, but I'll kind of take you all the way to Genesis and then all the way to Revelation. Today, we begin a three-week sermon series entitled The Gospel and Race. I'll preach this week. Next week, you'll hear from Pastor Kanan Parker. He's a friend of the church. He's a pastor at Pillar Church in East Fort Worth. And then on the third week, you'll hear from Pastor Kyle Porter, one of our pastors here at Mosaic Church. And you might be asking yourself, why this topic And why now? Well, a few reasons. The first is that Mosaic Church is a multi-ethnic and multicultural church. And we aspire to be increasingly multi-ethnic and multicultural. And we believe it's the responsibility of the pastors of the church to provide discipleship on the key issues of the day. And I don't think you can make any debate that this is a key issue of conversation today. And I would say that one of the most significant reasons to talk about this is that I believe the world has a very aggressive discipleship plan on the issue of race for you and for the kids in the life of our church. And any time where that's the case, we probably ought to open up God's word and go, what does the Bible say? So that's what we're doing. We're going to do that over the next three weeks. Over the last few years at Mosaic, we've had opportunities to address and respond to issues of race, culture, ethnicity as a church, but we wanted to take a chance for a sustained treatment of the topic. We've never really had a chance to sit down and go, okay, let's explore this concept through the lens of Scripture in kind of a systematic fashion, and so that's what we embark on today. And this process really started for us about 15 months ago. The elders of Mosaic Church began to undertake reading, training, study, coaching, counseling, prayer, on the topics of race, culture, and ethnicity because we just knew it was a very hot-button issue and we felt like, you know what, we should give a lot of time to a sober-minded consideration of the topic. And so we began to do that. And we began to kind of work through it and to pray through it, to search the scripture, to study. Because we, as pastors of the church, are held responsible for teaching sound doctrine. That's, that's one of the responsibilities. There's only a few core competencies of a pastor. It's about, you know, 85% character in the job description. But the core competencies are ministry of prayer and ministry of the word. And part of that is teaching sound doctrine doctrine. So we said, you know what, we should probably really dive deep on this. And so we did that starting about 15 months ago. And then we we started to ask ourselves, how could we invite the people of Mosaic into that consideration? And so we're going to preach these three sermons. We'll also be releasing an article. It's about 20 pages long, it's pretty long. It could have easily been 40 or 60 or 80 pages, but we've, we've condensed and condensed and condensed. And that paper will go out to the members of Mosaic Church to accompany these sermons, and it will come out sometime in the next two weeks. We think it's a helpful summary of the relevant issues and questions that are at play in the conversation. Uh, we released a similar kind of article back in the spring for members of Mosaic on wisdom and school options because so many people were asking themselves Okay, as a Christian, how does the school options affect the discipleship of my kids? So we wanted to just search the scriptures and then provide what we felt like were some helpful roadmaps for consideration of that question. We will release more of these articles in the future. I got a long list of topics that I feel like are, hey, we need to like really begin to pray and speak to these things. And we're just going to work through them, hopefully semester by semester. So we're going to embark on this over the three weeks, but I do have a few requests for you. I have a few requests for you before we kick in. To series. The first one is this, and if you're a note taker, these would be three great things to write down. The first is I want you to carefully examine what the Bible has to say about these matters. I would say that most of the conversations that I have on crucial current events topics, Christians or non-Christians, the Bible never comes into conversation at all. For the Christian, that's surrendering our birthright. God has spoken. It's a measure for truth, goodness, and beauty. We don't want to give up what God has said. That's that's the grounds that we have to stand on with a humble confidence. And so the first thing I would say is over the next three weeks, I want you to carefully explore what the scriptures have to say about this issue. The second is I want you to ask yourself a couple of questions. The first, and the important one, what does the Bible say? This is just me repeating the first point. What does the Bible say? The second one, How might this be a little bit different than what I have thought or believed or the dominant stories I hear in the culture? Because I would imagine, like every other period in the history of the world, when you search the scriptures, you're going to find them in contrast with the dominant stories of your life and the life of the world. That's how every Christian has ever experienced the story of scripture. I don't think it will be different for us today. The third thing, we want to invite you into a slow, careful, deliberate consideration of a complex topic. We want to move past the kind of reactionary, tweetable understandings that the world would love us to live at forever. This requires us to move towards depth, and that will require slowness, caution, consideration, deep thinking, and the Christian is well-primed to do that, and I would say this church is well-primed to do this. Whenever I have conversations with members of Mosaic, I find our church to be inquisitive and curious and thoughtful and really inclined to thinking through issues deeply. And so I think this is an invitation that you'll gladly receive because it's something I've seen embodied in the life of our church together. And so to this end, we're going to start today looking at a passage. That passage passage is Galatians 3.28. So I'm going to read it again. Then afterwards, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. You're invited to respond, thanks be to God. The reason we do this is because God hasn't left us in silence. He's spoken. So let me read Galatians 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here's our big idea for the day. So if you're looking for the main point, you want to write it down, here it is. I'll repeat it a couple of times. Our unity in Jesus Christ redeems and showcases the beauty of our differences while destroying our divisions. Our unity in Jesus Christ redeems and showcases the beauties of our differences while destroying our divisions. Three things we have to talk about as we begin this series, okay? These are the three points. Giving it for all my type A folks. I hope you receive it as a blessing. (laughs) Here's the first one. We've got to talk about diversity and division in the Bible. Okay? We have to talk about diversity and division in the Bible. Everyone's talking about diversity. The Christian begins by saying, how did the world become diverse? It's a question that oftentimes we just kind of assume. But I would imagine the biblical answer probably should shape the way we think about the topic. Diversity and division in the Bible. The second, divisions destroyed in Christ. What does it mean to have our divisions destroyed in Christ? And then the third, what does it look like to have our diversity and differences redeemed in Christ? Diversity and differences redeemed in Christ. Now, I know I took you to Galatians 3, but you're going to need to flip back in your Bible to Genesis chapter 10. Now, we're going to start in Genesis, we're going to come back to Galatians, and then we're going to end in Revelation. Now, I'll tell you, there is so much that I'm going to be talking about that we get into far greater depth In the paper, certainly what we can do in a 35-minute sermon is very different than what we can do in a 20-page article, but I do want us to begin here because this is what I have found. Many of us as Christians, and myself included, when I embarked on this study, I don't think I could have given you a biblical definition of race. I don't think I could have. I, I mean, I knew that race was a conversation point. I knew that it was a topic that we were supposed to talk about or sometimes like not allowed to talk about at all right? I knew that it was kind of like something that you were like, be very careful how you touch it, but I don't know that I could have given you a biblical perspective on the concept, on the word, okay? And so as I began to search the scriptures, I really began to ask myself this question, what does the Bible say about race? Because that should be pretty important for the Christian. And when we get to Genesis 10, we're getting what I would say are the nuts and bolts of the biblical concept of race, Now, let me just kind of give you the story so far. You're familiar with it. God creates the world good, and in this world, he puts the crown of his creation, Adam and Eve. These are humans who bear the image of God. He tells them, be fruitful and multiply, cultivate and subdue. Now, do they keep God's commands? No. They fail in God's commands very early. This breaks humanity's relationship with God, humanity's relationship with self, humanity's relationship with one another, and humanity's relationship with the created order. It breaks everything. Sin enters the world, and it fractures all the good things. The good is still there, but now it is also clouded by brokenness. So you've got, in Genesis 3, a mixture of beauty and brokenness in what was intended to be God's good, complete, and whole world. Now, as this story unfolds, we see very quickly that sin begins to spiral significantly. Adam and Eve have two sons. One of those sons kills another. We see that sin is fracturing humanity's relationship with one another in some very significant ways. It gets to such a degree that God says, I have to judge the whole world. And so through the flood narrative, God pulls Noah and his righteous family through the judgment of the world so that they can begin again so that they can be a new Adam and Eve who would cultivate God's good world. But does Noah do that perfectly? No, he doesn't. He ends up drunk, naked, and ashamed, just like Adam and Eve had ended up naked and ashamed. If you don't know that story, go read it. It's a tragic and fascinating story. But after the story of Noah, the world begins to be populated. Who is it being populated by? Well, Adam and Eve's descendants. Well, more specifically, Noah's descendants So when we begin to look at what the Bible says, starting in Genesis 10, if you look just at what the chapter titles are, you will see this phrase starting in chapter 9, Noah's descendants. Then if you just look at the chapter title of Genesis 10, it'll say nations descended from Noah. Now if you skip kind of halfway through Genesis 11, you're going to find Shem's descendants and Terah's descendants. What you're seeing here in a very condensed way is a story of the population of the world. And it's very interesting when you look through Genesis 10, you'll see these phrases. Uh, you can see the first one in verse 5, but you see it really across chapter 10 and 11. You'll see, "...from these the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans and their nations." You'll see this throughout Genesis 10. But between Genesis 10 and the last part of what's called the table of nations in Genesis 11, a big event happens. Now, biblical scholars are kind of, curious about what the timing of this event is why is this part of the story told right here smack dab in the table of nations some suggest that it is a commentary on what he has said why were the nations scattering why were they going to other places we get in genesis 10 mention of other languages but then in verse 11 it says now the whole earth had one language in the same words So many Old Testament scholars will suggest that the Tower of Babel is the true story of how people were scattered. So these descendants of Noah came together sometime after the flood. They kind of condensed their power and their uh, abilities, and they begin to construct the Tower of Babel. Now, if you know anything about the Tower of Babel, not well-intentioned Babel. They didn't have good motivations when they were building the tower. It was a pretty bad situation, right? They tried to build this tower, and they tried to do so because they wanted to be up in the heavens. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, just pause for a second. If you're somebody in Babel, you kind of have good reason for building a really tall tower, don't you? Just think about the history of the world at the point. Can you think of a reason why it could be logistically advantageous to have a giant tower? Why? The flood, right? I mean, like, like, the motivation of the people of Babel isn't just, oh man, we want to do something great so that people can see how great we are. The motivation of the people of Babel is to avoid the judgment of God. They don't want that. <laughs> They don't want that. They don't want to be dispersed over the face of the whole earth, nor do they want to be sunk under the flood of God's judgment. But their motivation is wrong. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden, they're trying to flaunt God's kingdom. They're trying to overthrow it. They want to do something on their own that allows them to have what? Independence, control, autonomy. That's what they want. That's what they want. And God comes down and says, no, no, no. You can't, from the very beginning, you can't live in my world and be independent from me. That wasn't the goal. It's never been the goal. It's what Adam and Eve wanted in the garden. It's what they want at Babel. And God thwarts it, not because God is capricious, but because God hasn't created humanity to live in independence from him. He's created humanity to live in dependence and trust with him, right? And so what's happening at Babel is probably ground zero, so to speak, of the scattering of the nation. So by the time that we arrive at Genesis 12, which is the call of Abram, who is living in Ur of the Chaldeans, he's living in the place that would go on to become Babylon, okay? That's who Abram is. He's just a pagan guy living in Ur. But by the time we get to Genesis 12, we have the nuts and bolts of what I would refer to as the biblical account of race. Now, are ready for this? Because I'm about to give you two perspectives on race. I think they're crucial for you to understand. The first one is the biblical definition of race. So if you want to write it down, I'm going to say it slowly, because you might want it for the rest of the series. In scripture, we find that there is one human race. One human race. If by race we mean kind, that's how the language is used in Genesis. You see it even in the story of Noah, where Noah says, hey, bring on the animals two by two according to their kind. So if by species, if that's what we're talking about in race, the Bible says there's one human race, all of whom are image bearers. Okay, that's where it begins. It's not where it stops, but where it begins. In scripture, we find that there is one human race, all of whom are image bearers. That one race is marked by ethnic and cultural differentiation. It's marked by ethnic and cultural differentiation. So if you're talking about a biblical perspective on race, you begin with this. There is one human race, all of whom are image bearers, but that one race is marked by ethnic and cultural differences. Ethnic and cultural differentiation. This can present itself in a people's history, in a people's culture, in a people's appearance, in their language, in their practices. Let me just give you some examples. These are ones you'll be familiar with, no doubt, but let me just give you some examples. The first would be physical, color of our skin, shapes of our faces. There's cultural examples, languages that we speak, the forms of art and communication that we use, the stories that we tell. There are spiritual examples. As you see the earth populate with people, you see all kinds of spiritual practices and religions develop. For example, when Israel gets to Egypt, Egypt doesn't share the same religion, worldview, system of thought that Israel does, do they? They have a very different system. How did that happen, right? They all came from Noah. They all came from Adam and Eve. What what happened? Well, as cultures form, religious practices usually begin to change and develop. And there are historical examples, the history of our people groups and how we have arrived where we are at, why we live where we live, and how we got there. These are all examples of ethnic and cultural differentiation that all take place among the one human race, all of whom are image bearers. But there's also another definition of race, and we have to know this one too, okay? This is what I might refer to as the cultural definition of race, Okay. So if you want to write down this one, I think it's important. I'll tell you why you need to know both of it. Because you might be thinking, well, why do I even need to know the cultural definition if I already know the biblical definition? Well, hold on. We're going to get there. In American life, race as a word, as a concept, is most often used with reference to what is a socially created and reinforced hierarchy. Race as a concept in kind of the national conversation, is often used with reference to what is a socially created and reinforced hierarchy. That historically, at least in our country, has lumped people into two groups, white and non-white. Okay? This is the cultural perspective on race. I'm not saying it's the biblical perspective on race. It's the cultural perspective on race. Okay? Okay? A socially created and reinforced hierarchy that lumps people into two groups, white and non-white, while extending partiality, more on that word in just a minute, to white people over people of color. This is the cultural perspective on race. Partiality. Examples, lumping people into white and non-white groupings with no respect to the differences, distinctions, and differentiation among the people in those groupings. So you look at a whole group of white people and you go, yeah, they're all basically the same because they're all white. Or you look at a whole group of non-white people and say, well, they're all basically the same because they're not white. Right? This would be a cultural perspective on race. Another one would be making someone's appearance determinative of their role in society. Making someone's appearance determinative of their role in society. The third one, probably the most pernicious one, the one that we know we should probably stay away from the most, and I would say the one that because of shame we talk about the least Even though we kind of feel it's all, almost we feel like it needs to be talked about, but no one should talk about it because it feels like if I talk about it, then maybe I'll be guilty of it. Shame just paralyzes us in this conversation. So probably this third one, the practice of partiality in reference to people based on their skin color. These are kind of impacts or corollaries to the cultural definition of race. Why do you need both? Because as a Christian, you might be going... I don't need the other one. I just need the biblical one. Well, as Christians, we have to recover a biblical perspective on humans, race, and ethnic and cultural differences because we live in a culture that is deeply shaped by a false view. It's deeply shaped by an incorrect view. I'm not standing up here telling you that is the correct view. I'm saying it's the incorrect view. But the only way for us to meaningfully address it in our lives and the life of the world is to know the true view and the wrong view and to use the true view to talk to, through, and about the faulty view. See, we have to realize that the Bible has a story to tell about how we are different and how we can live unified. And that story is very different than America's perspective on race. It's incredibly different. We have to consider the unique way that America's story of race has impacted us, has shaped the way that we approach ethnic and cultural differentiation in our lives and practice. Because we want to be people who live in the story of Scripture and bring the gospel to bear on the issues, problems, and divisions that are created by broken approaches to the problem of race in the world. To do that, we're going to have to really know the true story. Like I said, the world has an alternative discipleship plan for you, and they're waging it constantly, all the time. And I think that for some Christians, they're so terrified of the blowback of talking about the way the Bible does that they've just said, I'm going to either be shamed into silence or I'm going to be shamed into yelling like the world is, both of which are flawed approaches. The Bible actually gives us grounds for a humble confidence on this issue. And in Genesis 10 and 11, we get a story about a way that image bearers spread out over the world. And in that spreading, they begin to experience ethnic and cultural differentiation. When we arrive at Genesis 12, we meet Abram. He's a man from Ur of the Chaldeans. He's going to go on to be the father of the nation of Israel. By the time Israel arrives at the land God promised Abraham, they will be an ethnically and culturally differentiated people. But they will be united. They will be united. They'll be united in their loyalty, dependency on Yahweh. You see, over the course of the Old Testament, we discover that God's world is populated by a variety of peoples, tribes, tongues, nations. We encounter all manner of people in the story of Scripture. Have you ever read the Old Testament and you start hearing like the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Jebusites, the Hivites? You're like, who are all of these people, right? Where did they all come from? Genesis gives us that story, it gives us that perspective, and this distinction that marks them, these differences that begin to take shape over the course of history, including the history of Scripture, they are shaped by the lands in which the people inhabit, they're shaped by the languages that the people develop, they're shaped by the cities that they build, the stories they tell, and for the Christian, you might go, okay, but aren't all of these ethnic and cultural differences, aren't they done away with in Jesus? Isn't that what Galatians 3.28 says? There's neither Greek nor Jew. There's, these differences no longer matter. We're one new man in Christ Jesus, right? Well, it may be, maybe not. Maybe, maybe there is something that is unity without uniformity. Let's look at Galatians 3 again. Now having seen kind of maybe just the, the, the basic nuts and bolts of thinking through the biblical perspective on race, let's answer Galatians 3 because look at it in verses 27 through 29. Let me read it for us. And then I want to kind of uh, set up why this passage I think is important and then give you some cultural context around what's happening at the church in Galatia that I think we can find helpful. Galatians 3:27 For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female and for you, are all, uh, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So if we, what we've seen is the nuts and bolts of diversity and difference in the Bible. What we find here is the hope that divisions are destroyed in Christ. Because when we read Galatians 3.28, it can sound a little bit like, okay, well, gen, there's no longer Gentile or Jew those are the two fundamental kind of ethnic and cultural categories of this part of the world at this time, then obviously Paul's saying they're done away with, right? They're gone. We, we shouldn't even think of those categories any longer. Uh, people will, will usually use this verse because they'll talk about something like neutrality or, you know, I, I, like colorblind. Living, you might hear things like, "It doesn't matter to me what someone looks like, or I don't see color. As long as someone is a Christian, it it doesn't matter if they're black, white, brown, whatever. I, I I just, you know, I don't want to see it. I don't want to acknowledge difference. And I understand this instinct. I really do. I get it. I mean, this is what I feel pulled to natively in my heart. I'm like, yeah, okay, that makes a lot of sense. But it's really not what this verse suggests. This verse isn't suggesting differences aren't real that distinction doesn't matter, that differentiation isn't important, nor does that accord with the story of Scripture as it pertains to the question of difference, distinction, and diversity. You see, the story of Scripture is constantly telling us two absolutely crucial things. And I want you to write down both of these if you're taking notes, because I want you to hear me. The story, story of Scripture is constantly telling us that ethnic and cultural differentiation isn't something to be ignored. That's the first one. It's not something to be ignored. But also... It cannot be the fundamental identity of the Christian. Both of those things are true. Ethnic and cultural differences should not and cannot be ignored, but they should not be the fundamental identity of the Christian. They're not the fundamental identity marker of an individual. Ethnic and cultural differentiation is brought into its proper frame in Christ Jesus. Let me give you some cultural context that I hope will make this passage just pop a little bit for you, okay? Because in Galatians 3.28, Paul is speaking to a church that's dealing with division. Maybe you already know this. But Judaizers have come into the church in Galatia. They're trying to convince the Gentiles in this church that if they want to follow Jesus, then they have to take on the most significant mark of ethnic and cultural differentiation for a Jew, which was what? Circumcision. That's what the Judaizers, that's their whole project. Paul has to deal with them in Acts when he's dealing with Peter. He has to deal with them in a pronounced way here at the church in Galatia. What they're saying is this. If you want to follow Jesus, you basically have to become a cultural Jew, an ethnic Jew, in order to do that. So they're calling into question the Gentiles' ability to follow Jesus because the Gentiles are not and are choosing not to become Ethnic and cultural Jews. And Paul is clear throughout his ministry. Gentiles do not have to take on the signs of the law that Jews carried with them. In some ways, Paul deals with this in every letter he writes. You don't have to take circumcision on yourself. You don't have to become an ethnic and cultural Jew to become a part of God's people. See, the Judaizers are mistakenly practicing a kind of ethnic and cultural-based partiality. Now, I want you to write down this word, partiality. Because if you search the scriptures, you're not going to find the word racism. That shouldn't surprise you. If you search the scriptures, you're not going to find the word trinity. If you search the scriptures, you're not going to find a moral commandment to not do cocaine. That doesn't mean that we can't deduce, you know what, I shouldn't do cocaine. It doesn't mean the doctrine of the trinity isn't a scriptural doctrine. It just means we look at Christian truth, and then we go, okay, in light of Christian truth, we need to make some synthesizing claims. So you're not going to find the word racism in the Bible. But you will find many mentions, descriptions, and teaching on partiality. But that's a word we don't often use very often. But let's talk about it because I think partiality is a really great place to go when we begin to talk about racism, okay? When we talk about racism. Because what I would say ethnic and cultural partiality is, we would call that racism. They are taking something that is a marker of Jewish cultural identity, And they're saying, you have to have this. And if you don't have it, you can't follow Jesus. And I want to pause here because Romans 2.11, a passage we've already looked at, is really one of the great introductions of the concept of partiality in the Bible. In Romans 2.11, when Paul is trying to help demonstrate the foolishness of Gentiles and Jews judging one another, he says this, God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. So what is partiality? If it's going to be kind of our umbrella term to talk about what is a significant issue in the world and in our conversation, we should probably define it. So if you wrote down partiality, you can write down this definition. Partiality is this. When someone's difference from another person or group is held against them. When someone's difference from another person or group is held against them and their worth or role is judged on that basis. That's partiality. When someone's difference from another person or group is held against them, And their worth or role is judged on that basis. All kinds of partiality. All kinds of it. Economic partiality. That's probably, we get a lot of mentions of partiality in the Old Testament, specifically the minor prophets. Almost all the times that it's mentioned in the minor prophets, it's mentioned with reference to the wealthy demonstrating partiality against the poor. And God's judgment on Israel for doing that, both at an individual level and at a national level. So economic partiality. This would be looking down upon somebody or holding against someone their economic value or their material possessions. You're right? That's economic partiality. Another one would be moral partiality. This is kind of the idea of shamed people shame people, right? Like when Jesus, when the woman is caught in the act of adultery and Jesus brings her out, right? Or they they drag her out, excuse me, they they drag her out and Jesus approaches her, right? What does he say? Hey, let he who is without sin cast the first stone, right? What's happening is a kind of moral partiality. They all are wicked. They're all broken by sin. They drag her around. They're like, look at how bad her sin is, right? It's a kind of moral partiality, holding against someone what they have done in a way that is going to be determinative of their worth or role. We also find ethnic and cultural partiality. This is a great example of it. The paper, the article gets into the countless examples in the ministry of Jesus. And this is really what I think racism is, biblically. It's a kind of partiality that is shown because of ethnic or cultural differences, or more often, the outward appearances, accents, expressions, or distinctions of ethnic and cultural differences. Okay? That's really what racism is. It's a kind of partiality. If we were going to talk about racism the way the Bible does, we'd want to start by talking about partiality. This partiality is often shaped by the unique historical and cultural context of a people. Like, I would imagine that, um, that none of us in here are guilty of practicing partiality against the Samaritans, right? Why? Anybody know any Samaritans? You're right? Nah, you don't know any Samaritans, right? I don't need to talk to us about practicing partiality against Samaritans. We don't know any. But do you know who Jesus is constantly challenging the Jews in their practice of partiality against? The Samaritans. Why do they want to kill him after the story of the good Samaritan? Because the hero was a Samaritan. They're blown away by that. I mean, they're like, whoa. Every time that Jesus Jesus does this, they are really shook by this information. Okay? Okay. Because Jesus is stepping in, and he is challenging their practice of ethnic and cultural-based partiality. You see the Samaritans as more wicked than you, but they're not. But they're not. What you're holding against them is their history and their culture. And you may go, okay, all right, uh, partiality, I get it. Only God shows no partiality. So does that mean that we're just all stuck? If only God shows no partiality, are we, like, we're irreparably broken, we're always showing partiality all the time? Well... No, I think that would be to say too much. In this passage, we're seeing Paul take issue with a particular practice of partiality against the Judaizers. But in 1 Timothy 5.21, a letter that doesn't have the same ring to it with the Judaizers, Paul charges the elders and the people of the church. He says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. You might think, well, this is just Paul. In James chapter 2, James writes, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So I think we can conclude four things about partiality from these passages in the story of Scripture. Four things, you can write them down. The first, God alone sees the heart and is perfect in impartiality. God alone sees the heart and is perfect in impartiality. God alone shows no partiality. That's the first thing. That's theologically true. That's where we start. When the world is having social, cultural, economic, and political conversations and bringing us their questions, we start with biblical and theological responses. The first one, God is alone in showing no partiality. God's perfect in that way. The second, everyone else shows partiality. Everyone. Everyone that's not God. If, we, if God is in the room and he is by the presence of the Holy Spirit, God is alone and showing no partiality. Every other person in this room, Shows partiality. Every creature, every person. The only question is when do we show partiality? How do we show partiality? And to or against whom do we show partiality? That's the second one. The third thing, our unique cultural and historical context, it shapes the way that we show partiality. You don't have to worry about partiality against Samaritans. You don't know any. You probably have to worry about partiality against people you interact with probably you're going to have to worry about it. You're going to have to think about it. Hmm. Search me and know me, Lord. Am I hardening partiality? The fourth thing, and this is good news. It's good news, and this is where, I think this is where some in the cultural conversation would say, oh, no, 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 you can't say that. They would say, this is just a problem. Everybody's kind of stuck into it. The same way, we're caught in the pit, we can't get out of the pit, just where we're at. But for the Christian, the story's different. For the Christian, like all sin, it's possible for us to not show partiality and walk in the ways of God. It's possible. You can actually have the Lord search you, know you, a continual process of confession and repentance and obedience, and the Lord can sanctify you. You are not just an irreparably broken sinner any longer. You're now a son and daughter of God. You've been given a new heart. You can walk in obedience. Transformation can actually happen. You can actually live a life of holiness. You can live a reconciled life. See, so are we just stuck here? No. Is the solution to just let our differences define us? No. Is the solution to just let our differences divide us? No. Is the solution to act like there aren't real differences between us and others? No. That's not what's going on here. What is going on? In Galatians 3.28, this is an argument that our unity in Christ is greater than the divisions that separate us. Our unity in Christ is greater than the divisions that separate us. This unity in Christ is available to anyone by grace through faith in Jesus, regardless of who they are or where they come from. Now, look at this verse because it challenges people on both extremes. If you are someone who says differences shouldn't matter at all, we should live like they aren't there. This verse and the rest of the story of Scripture is going to challenge that idea. But if you're somebody who says our differences have to define us, and they have to divide us, well, then this verse and the rest of Scripture is going to challenge that. What it's telling us is this. Our oneness in Christ doesn't obliterate our differences, but it does destroy our divisions. Our oneness in Christ Jesus, it doesn't obliterate our differences, but it does destroy our divisions. That's incredibly good news incredibly good news we know this verse is not saying that our differences don't matter you know how we know that because you don't read it and go well there's neither jew nor greek okay so i guess there's no more ethnic and cultural differences we should just live like they aren't there well, hold on there's no male and female Oof. right Oof. that that verse if you read it out of context could feel like a radical left thing to say. no male and female whoa paul is woke you know what i'm saying? So you can read this and be like, wow, Paul is either like anti-woke or the wokest wokester of everyone, okay? He's not saying either of those things. Paul is not who the culture wants him to be. Paul is saying differences are real. They are, but they don't define us. They're real, but they don't define us, and they shouldn't divide us Because we have a new identity in Jesus, a new identity that properly reframes what it means to be a man or to be a woman, a new identity that properly reframes all of our ethnic and cultural differences. What the world would seek to say, it's gotta define you. It's gotta be the fundamental thing about your life or it's gotta divide you. You can't share life in common together with another person who's unlike you. The Bible says no. And at the same time, the Bible says, you know what? The world is full of image bearers who are different and distinct, and that is wonderful and beautiful, and we don't want to look past it. We don't want to minimize it. We don't have to ignore it because it's not dangerous in life in Jesus. Putting on Christ doesn't mean we don't still carry with us the uniqueness of our experiences, our stories, our ethnic and cultural differentiation. Let me say it clearer. Let me just make it real simple. Entering into life in Christ doesn't mean that a Haitian person has to ignore, diminish, or forget all of their Haitian heritage and culture. It doesn't mean that a Korean man or woman has to ignore, diminish, forget all of their Korean heritage and culture. It doesn't mean that an Irish man has to forget or forego or diminish all of their Korean heritage and culture. Entering into life in Christ doesn't mean you have to absorb the unique ethnic and cultural differentiation of another group of people. And this shouldn't be hard, but it is hard. Why? Okay, now put on your seatbelt. It's hard because we live in a broken world. That's the theological reality. This brokenness plays itself out in every civilization in unique ways. American history has made this difficult because it, from the very beginning, has chosen to take the real and beautiful ethnic and, di- uh, differentiation, ethnic and cultural differentiation of God's world and use it to create a racialized society. That's, that's one of the reasons it's uniquely difficult. As it was for the Jews with Samaritans and their age, it is for us today. And America isn't the only civilization to do this. I think you can make a compelling argument that this has happened in every civilization throughout history. But of course, we have to be uniquely concerned with American life. Why? Where do you live? We live here. We got to be concerned about it here. And I, I, I listen. I, I love my country. I love living here. It has presented unique struggles of following Jesus like every civilization ever has. And we have to be aware of those. And this is one of them. Living in a racialized society is in many ways a society like many before it, where partiality has had such an impact as to become an unconscious part of the culture. This racialized society, one that has created and socially reinforces a racial hierarchy, has an unbiblical view of race But it is a view of race that has tragically been operating in the life of our society from its earliest days and continues to operate in many ways today. But we're not stuck as Christians. Because this is not our home. We're citizens of a different kingdom. There is a story that can liberate us from the bondage of this false story. When we enter into life in Christ Jesus, we are given a new identity. Regardless of our ethnic and cultural differentiation, we can now say that the most fundamental thing about us is that we are in Christ Jesus. This is gloriously true. We are in Christ Jesus as a diverse church family, full of all different kinds of distinct, different, and differentiated peoples. But our distinctiveness isn't removed in Christ, it's redeemed in Christ. The church should be a family of different and diverse peoples who are looking to leave behind all that is broken from their unique ethnic and cultural backgrounds while also bringing all that is beautiful into the family of Christ. That's the goal here. And we get a glimpse of this picture of heaven in the New Testament. Go to Revelation 7. I'm almost there, guys. Thank you for your patience. Revelation 7. Verses 9 through 12. Let me read this for us. It's on the screen as well. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What do we find in heaven? What is the hope? Is it homogeneity? No. No. It's diverse peoples united in Christ Jesus. And I know it may seem odd to us, but it's not odd to the story of Scripture, that when we get a glimpse of heaven, all those distinctions of ethnic and cultural differentiation, they're not removed. If the goal was just that, that we wouldn't even see them, we wouldn't even acknowledge them, we would pretend like they're, they're not even there. When we got to heaven, God's perfect place, wouldn't they just be totally gone? Completely removed? Just washed over? But they're not. Those differences remain. Heaven will be multilingual. Heaven will be multicultural. Heaven will be multi-ethnic. Heaven will be colorful. You see, if our differences in distinctiveness were a part of something broken, they'd be removed in heaven, and yet they're not. They're not. But if our differences in distinctiveness, if those were the fundamental reality. If that was the goal, wouldn't that be the song of celebration? But it's not. See, this cuts both ways. And the world would have us just say, pick a lane and run in it and keep your mouth shut. But the Bible keeps us in a holy tension always. And here too, the song of celebration in heaven isn't a song going, look how different we are but it is a bunch of different people singing one song, praise be to the lamb who will receive the reward of his suffering. The picture we get of heaven resonates with the full witness of scripture. The people of God have always been, are, and will always be composed of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And the goal of this will always go beyond the people to celebrate the God of salvation. And we are on a journey at this church. A journey of learning how to live in celebration, awareness, advocacy for the diverse and different family of God in Christ that is a part of Mosaic without allowing our unique differences to define us or to divide us. Over the last few years at Mosaic, we have lamented and grieved when life in our racialized culture has reared its hideous head. And let me tell you something, we're going to continue to do that. We're going to continue to do that. The scripture gives me a glimpse of heaven and let me tell you, I will settle for nothing that falls short of it. I don't care whether it's painted red or it's painted blue. This is the vision I have. Anything that falls short of this, we're going to name it. We're going to name it. We're going to lament it. We're going to pray against it. We're going to grieve it. I will never be a pastor who tells us that we should ignore, minimize evil, injustice, wickedness, and oppression. Even, maybe especially even, when it makes us uncomfortable to talk about. And I know, it makes us uncomfortable. Jesus' teaching ministry is constantly making his listeners uncomfortable. You should expect that that is going to be reflected in any teaching ministry of any church. There are going to be times where we feel like, oh, should we be talking about this? This feels weird. This feels uncomfortable. I feel challenged. That's going to happen for you and for I. But more than that, we're going to be a church that celebrates and acknowledges the ethnic and cultural differentiation of God's people. We won't be a church composed of people who are asked to abandon the distinctiveness of their cultures and ethnicities. But we won't be a people who say that our ethnic and cultural differences are the most fundamental thing about us. We're going to live in the in-between. And if the world wants to shout at each other from the extremes, we are going to be people of peace. Faithful in the tension. We're not going to be tossed to and fro by every wind of the culture's opinion. We will be a church that magnifies the beauty of Christ as an ethnically and culturally differentiated family, united together in Jesus, while we simultaneously reject and look to undo the harmful consequences and impact of living life in a broken world. Let me land this for us. What will this mean for us? Since we are and aspire to be a multicultural and multiethnic family of faith united in Christ, we will need to cultivate an awareness of how our unique cultural and ethnic background has formed us to practice partiality, of which racism is a kind. We all practice partiality. We should become aware of how, when, and to whom that happens. This should lead us to confession, self-awareness, repentance, and freedom. We will need to be sensitive and empathetic to those in our midst for whom life in a racialized society like our own is a different experience from our own. We should be humble enough to acknowledge that my experience of the world may not be everyone's experience of the world. That's probably just a good admission to make for us. Like, okay, I don't know that the whole world works the way that I think it does. This should lead us to humility, curiosity, and tenderness as we take into account the experiences of other people. We will need to be watchful over how the dominant political, social, cultural, and economic narratives of our age will be used in power to divide us from one another. Can I get an amen on this one? We'll have to learn how to speak the story of Scripture in response to the false stories of our age, regardless of what house they emerge from. We will need to look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of our brothers and sisters in Christ who have not had the same privileges and powers we might have had as a result of life in a racialized society where partiality has been personally and corporately practiced. This is what we are going to do as a church. It's going to look different. We're not all the same. It's going to look different. It's going to play itself out in a countless array of ways. So what do you do with all this? Well, you consider what the Bible has to say. You start there. That's where the Christian begins. After that, you consider where that is in contrast with what you have believed, with what you believe, or the dominant stories that you hear. You ask the Lord to search your heart and illuminate where partiality has taken root, and you enter into a slow, deliberate, careful consideration of the issues. Let me encourage you. Let me plead with you. Don't mirror the world here. Don't mirror the world. The world wants you to be shamed into thinking about this. Don't accept that shame and don't give that shame. Romans 8.1, for the Christian there is therefore now no condemnation for, for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't have to live in shame on this topic. We can explore the riches of Scripture. We can embrace a humble, humble confidence on what Scripture says, and we can move forward freely in the world. You can do that. You can live that life. The world wants you to be highly emotional and reactionary. They don't want you to have grounds for a humble confidence and a generous curiosity on this issue. Don't be governed by your feelings or the temperature of the world. James 1.19, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. The world wants you to be content with a shallow understanding of this topic. If it can keep you shallow, it can either keep you silent or keep you yelling about things that you have not considered appropriately. Don't be satisfied with that. Paul says in Philippians 4 or 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Why spend our time thinking about this? Well, the church of God is like a mosaic, isn't it? The sun has risen in resurrection glory, and the light that shines from it is the pure, undivided light of Jesus Christ, the King of kings, Lord of lords, the glory of the good news of the gospel. But when this pure, undivided light hits the mosaic of Christ's church, it shines out in beautiful fragments and particles that are different and distinct beyond any one shade, beyond any one color, beyond any one language, beyond any one people group, beyond any one culture. And what we see when we gaze upon it is a glimpse of an incredible reality. It is the glory of God's diverse family united in Christ Jesus. This is my prayer for us. May our unity in Jesus Christ redeem and showcase the beauty of our differences and distinctiveness while destroying the divisions of the world, destroying the divisions of the flesh, And may we be a people who ask the Lord, search me and know me, find every wicked way in my heart and uproot it. Why? So that I might know you and make you known in the world around us. That is the hope. That's the prayer. That's why the time is given. That's why we have prayed and considered and begged and poured over the scriptures. That's the hope that we hold out. It's a hope tied to the glory of the kingdom to come. A glory that we inhabit now in the already and the not yet. And one that I pray we get an increasing foretaste of day after day after day. Lord, help. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace and mercy in Jesus. We pray, God, that you would humble our hearts. And that you might walk us through confession. That we might see that the world is full of image bearers, ethnically and culturally different from one another. That we might embrace all of the beauties while leaving behind all of the brokenness. And that we may be a people who demonstrate to the watching world a better way. We pray these things in the name of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you stand with me as we receive the Lord's Supper? I'm going to ask you a favor as we leave here today that will bless the kids team for I have gone over my time. If you would like to bless a volunteer today, if you would make haste and tell them that their pastor loves them deeply. (laughs) Every week when we receive the Lord's Supper, we remember that we have been invited to a table that we have no business being at. Nothing by nature allows us to eat this meal by grace 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 god's grace on the night in which he was betrayed jesus took the bread and when he broke it he gave thanks and he said this is my body which is broken for you as often as you eat this do this in remembrance of me and so we eat in the same way after the supper he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, which is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. And so we drink. For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And to that we say, Maranatha. Lord, would you come? We're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to read and recite. The